Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology. I am so excited to have a special guest on the show. We're going to be talking all about this concept as food as medicine. And this goes really well in line with the whole concept of the food medicine continuum. So our guest today is Jennifer Maynard, and she worked in the biotech and pharmaceutical specialty medicine area for over 20 years. And after that, she took her passion into changing people's lives through modern medicine. She felt that her knowledge and experience would be better served in focusing on this idea of food as medicine. And even though we know that there's been a lot of progress made with um, Western medicine, the battles that people face with chronic illness is still one that's under, underway and in some cases being lost. In order to address this, she founded Greater Greens, which is a regenerative organic farm, as the first step to bringing this movement front and center and to also help focus or refocus on the root of our health challenges. Once the farm was fully operational, Jennifer also co-founded Nutrition for Longevity, which is a farm-to-fork meal kitting company that focuses on bringing nutritionally tailored meals to the masses direct from her farm. So I'm so excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Jennifer. How are you today? Very good. Great. How's the weather where you're at right now? Um, it's actually a lot warmer than it has been. Um, it's a little cloudy, but we've had a much nicer start of spring now in New Jersey. We had snow about a week and a half ago, so wow, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a very strange year from a weather standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Well, here in, in, in Atlanta, we've had weird weather too. It, it's just been kind of cold, and now it's blazing hot, and I have a fledgling um, garden in my backyard that I'm trying to get going, but I know you, you have a lot of experience with farming and gardening. So why don't we start there, um, maybe by discussing some of your work on this idea of regenerative farming. What is regenerative farming and how is that linked to human and planetary health? Yeah, so um, regenerative farming... Um, we will become a much more um, prominent word over the next few years, but it's it's becoming also a, a little bit abused already. Um, so I'll give my definition of regenerative farming. Um, there's a lot of different ones floating out there, but for us, our priority and our focus is to do everything we can to regenerate the soil. So it's all about how do we build up this healthy soil microbiome and put our emphasis there because that's what we believe is key to growing healthy food. And with that healthy food, then we, we promote a healthy gut microbiome and a healthy body. And so regenerative farming practices that we use, we use five main principles. Um, and they're really mimicking what mother nature would do if we kind of got out of the way. So one of the things is we are very biodiverse. So we don't have any monocrops. We make sure we get a lot of different roots and plants in the ground. Um, so we promote actual soil biodiversity, which is really important. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, why that's important. Um, the other thing we do is we are a no-till farm. So we don't use any tillage after we prepare our beds. So we initially have to cut the beds, um, but we do almost all vegetable production and some orchard production on the farm. Um, so once those are in place, we really never touch them again. We're just kind of layering everything on top after that point. 
Um, so we don't use any tillage. We also don't use any synthetic chemicals that could damage the soil microbiome. So we're really, uh, I say no synthetic chemicals because plants themselves create chemicals that are actually beneficial, um, but we don't, we don't add anything to the farm that's synthetic. And Great. then, yeah, so yeah. when you talk about tillage, just to kind of break that down for the audience, what does that, what does that entail? And just, just so they can get a picture of a yeah, farm yeah. With tillage versus without. Yeah, so typical conventional farming um, uses tillage, which is essentially like a deep fork that we drag through the soil. And it's been thought to be beneficial to the soil for 50 plus years. Um, because it's it's said to aerate the soil and it must be good and then it also pulls up all the weeds and kind of stirs up the ground and so when farms use tillage it, it mainly is to kind of remove the weeds and clear the field and to aerate the soil but what we're finding out the more we're diving into soil biology is using that deep fork which usually goes about six inches deep even sometimes deeper so there are lo different levels of tillage we're actually breaking up the soil structure, which is really important for the soil microbiome to, to thrive. So we try to really never disrupt that soil microbiome or do it as little as possible um, because that's where around the roots of the plants is where the soil microbiome really concentrates in the rhizosphere microbiome. And so that's what we try to leave intact. And another part of that is that we leave the root mass of any non-root vegetables in the ground. So say a tomato plant, we just chop it at the base when we're done with it for the year. And that rhizosphere microbiome can continue to multiply and thrive. Um, and we don't you know, pull all that good stuff out of the soil and rip it out. So we, we also do that. And, and then it builds up soil organic matter. It continues the life cycle of that plant to where it eventually just um, degrades in the soil and creates even more structure in the soil. So that's another practice that we um, focus on. That's great. And you mentioned something that I just find fascinating, and that's the rhizosphere. I don't know how many people listening have heard of this before, but this is basically the microbial world interacting with plant roots. And then there are also, of course, underground critters like insects and even mammals that are all communicating and, and, and interacting um, beneath the surface. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about this idea of the rhizosphere and what do we know and what do we don't, what don't we know about? Yeah, good question. So I think um, I, maybe I'll start with what we don't know. So we've just started to understand the human gut microbiome through the Human Ge Genome Project. And that started branching into soil biology because there are so many similarities to it. So if you put it in terms of the human body, we know about the big toe worth of information about our soils, so very little. Um, but what we do know is extremely fascinating. So, so the soil, the rhizosphere microbiome is what we focus on the most because it's really um, similar to the gut microbiome. So it's, it's like a neural network under the soil where the fungi and the microorganisms um, can really communicate with the plant. And plants are, I think, much more complex than most people realize. Their system is very complex and there are a lot of similar, similarities to the human system. And what's really fascinating is the soil microbiome, part of it is passed down 
generation to generation in the seeds. So some of these have millions of years of um, hereditary um, genetics that have been passed down that are not the plant itself. And that's part of what we call the holobiome. So you have this um, knowledge essentially that's been passed down by this microbiome that helps the, support the plant with stress coping mechanisms. And so if, for example, there's a drought, and in the past there had been a drought with that same plant, maybe even 100 years before, some of those microorganisms have already experienced that, and they can communicate with the plant. And what's really fascinating that we've only just really figured out in the last five years is those microorganisms are actually affecting the plant at a genetic level. So they're actually changing the way that it expresses its genetics. So they can tell the plant, send out deeper, more lateral roots and finer root fibers that can pull in more moisture because there's a drought that's gonna be coming. And so it really allows, it, it essentially expands the plant's stress, stress coping me uh, mechanisms by expanding the diversity of the overall holobiome DNA. And I think that is kind of mind blowing for a lot of people that, you know, more than 50% of the makeup is non-plant cells and in a human, non-human cells that are actually interacting in the soil microbiome sense with the plant and communicating with it and even sending it signals how it can better survive and cope with the different stresses around it. So I think those are some of the really fascinating things that are starting to come out in the scientific research to the point where some of the researchers that are really the founders in this area are saying, you know, we've spent all this time researching GMOs and how we can change these plants and we might have been able to achieve even more or we, we likely will achieve more if we had just understood how to support and adapt the soil microbiome because it actually has more influence on how the plant expresses its genetics. So um, I think it's really fascinating. It's again, this neural network that communicates within the plant. It can even communicate to different plants that are in like the same plot. So if one's getting attacked with aphids, it can already be sending signals through the soil for the other plants to create more phytonutrients to fight off the aphids. So it's this incredible complex system that we kind of forget about and we know very little about and just the stuff we're starting to understand is in incredible. Yeah, um, well, I think, I think the focus on biodiversity, not only in the plant species that are being cultivated, but also this idea of biodiversity beneath beneath the surface is is incredibly interesting and like as you said so relevant to health of the population how does you mentioned um certain plants can produce compounds that could serve as defense compounds or secondary metabolites that might also protect other species is this kind of all under the umbrella of companion planting um not necessarily so i mean Plants produce, so they can um, send signals to other plants. Say you have multiple tomato plants next to each other. It can do it for the same species. It can potentially do it even for other species. And it can even do it for humans that consume that produce. So um, a lot of how that communication is done is through phytochemicals or phytonutrients, as we call them, for human consumption. And that's what a lot of plants, um, we see it because 
um, you know, we're visual, uh, human beings are visual. We see it a lot of times in the pigmentation of a plant. That's how it manifests a lot of times. So you have these purple plants um, like blueberries, for example, that are really high in the phytonutrient anthocyanin. And it's really now known and researched to be good for the human body. And we know these are, you know, we kind of call them superfoods. But these are different chemical compounds created by the plant. And when you grow plants in a biodiverse atmosphere and organically, there have been studies showing that they're about 30% more concentrated in phytonutrients. And that's how the plants are able to cope with stress because organic farming is can be stressful. There's more pests involved. There might even be more weather extremes that the plants are exposed to that they're not modified to adapt to. So they're, they're pulling from that overall genetics in their soil to help them cope with that. And then when a human consumes those and, and every color, I tell people eat the rainbow because it's giving you this spectrum of different phytonutrients and each color indicates a different spectrum of phytonutrients. So if you eat blueberries or purple carrots or uh, these really rich colored vegetables, you're getting good doses of those phytonutrients. And science, scientists are now starting to see that those trigger the same stress coping mechanisms in the human body as they do in the plants. So it's not necessarily just plant to plant, but even when we consume a lot of healthy fruits and vegetables with a lot of biodiversity also in what we consume, um, we're also helping build up our system and support our system and our gut microbiome, especially. Yeah. So Jennifer, what you said about eating your colors, I think resonates with so many of the listeners. This is something that has been written about extensively by authors like Michael Pollan. And it's something I teach about in my course um, at Emory where, you know, students are taught about the importance of plant secondary metabolites and compounds like polyphenols and flavonoids and things like anthocyanins that act to protect the plant. But as you mentioned in the human body, they also act as really potent um, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory agents, and really can make a big difference in helping to combat some of the underlying causes of chronic um, disease. And um, yeah, and one other thing that just came to mind as you were speaking was this idea of, you know, how plants can produce these differently depending on how they're grown and where they're grown and what stresses they're put under. Um, I think everyone can taste that when you think about your coffee. If you have coffee grown in different regions, right, you have that different flavor profile and, and, and that's due to the microbes, to the soil, to the environment. There's just so many different factors that influence it. And that's all plant chemistry that you're tasting. So I'm wondering, we, we, you set up this difference now between regenerative farming and um, the importance of not using tilling or tillage in that, in that perspective. How does regenerative farming, though, compare to organic farming and versus normal? So you have monocropping, then you have organic, you might have, you know, and regenerative. How do those all compare? Yeah, so um, there, so you can have both. So we actually support all the organic practices um, to be sort of certified organic. So that usually is more what kind of chemicals you put on. And you have to be careful because regenerative farming is now becoming kind of a buzzword. 
Um, but a lot of it is also not organic. So we do both because, for example, no-till farming, a lot of farms, while it's good that they're starting to allow the soil structure to build up and they're starting to use cover cropping, they still use a lot of herbicides and things to then kill off their crop at the end of the season. We don't do that. We continue to, to keep our, our um, soil covered year round and we use different types of practices to be able to do that. We use a lot of intercropping, so we have tighter spacing of our vegetables and things like that, but um, we don't terminate it with herbicides. So again, that's, that's our commitment to the no synthetic chemicals. So regenerative farming really means you're doing as much as you can to rebuild the soil, but there's different levels that you go to doing that. For us, we try to follow all of them um, to where we're, not disrupting the soil and we're adding nutrients through compost to the soil. We're also always building up our pollinator habitats, which are usually perennial plants. And those build really deep, usually root systems that stay in the ground for a really long time. So you build up kind of some, I guess you would say heritage into the soil. Um, so there's different levels of it. I guess the difference is organic farming, um, a lot of organic farms still use tillage and they still will apply um, non-synthetic chemicals so they can still use different fertilizers and amendments and a, and a lot of things like that and they can still till the soil. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're building the soil up, it just means that they're using less chemicals and they're using chemicals that have been approved to have less of an impact on the environment. Um, but they can still use chemicals and regenerative farming means that they're, they're doing things like cover cropping and adding compost and maybe even livestock interchangeably in rotations um, to build up the soil. And they are doing things that are known to build the soil, but it doesn't mean that they're doing it without chemicals. So, um, you know, we try to really do both, or we do do both to, to have the best of both worlds, but they do mean different things. Um, and they're not like exclusive that if it's regenerative, it's guaranteed to be organic or vice versa. So it's, I do think more and more farmers are realizing both on the organic side that the regenerative farming has a lot of benefits. You do see better yields over time you do see way better water retention. So every 1% soil organic matter that we build on our farm, we save about 170,000 gallons of water. So New Jersey is not usually in a drought. We're a, a very wet climate typically, um, but it's actually better for us because we don't flood. A lot of the farms around us, including the organic farms, flooded pretty heavily last year and lost a lot of crops. We had no, no irrigation issues, no flooding. Um, and that was because we held all that water into our soil. Um, and, and, but in drought regions, that becomes even more important. The average soil in the U.S. used to be, used to be at 11% soil organic matter. It's now at about 1%. So if you think 170,000 gallons per acre per 1%, if we could get it even back to half of that, you're talking major water retention and a lot less water usage going to agriculture. Um, which is critical, yeah. And so, and then erosion, when you use regenerative practices properly, we cut down erosion 700 times of a conventional farm. We essentially lose none of our soil. We keep it all intact. And if you look at what's happening, you know, with the Mississippi River and different river systems that go into the ocean, 
we are creating a lot of runoff that has high nitrogen because it's mainly fertilizers that have been artificially put on top and then they get washed into the rivers and they create these dead zones that kill a lot of fish and they're not we they lack oxygen because they're so nitrogen rich um, so from an environmental standpoint it's it's also you're adding natural inputs onto the soil and you're building up that soil microbiome and as part of that you're building up this um, soil organic matter which which starts to kind of layer and then i guess the last point which is probably gaining the most interest most recently is the carbon sequestration capability um, we can on our farm in new jersey sequester about 10,700 tons of carbon per year because of this building up of the soil organic matter and if we look at what we can do um, as far as the fastest and the lowest cost impact on the environment to start reversing climate change it is agriculture and it's using regenerative farming practices to sequester carbon um, and that's because we've lost about two-thirds of the carbon in our soil over time and it's basically like a big sponge that we can pull it back in so it's got huge potential not just to produce healthy food, but to start reversing climate change. And so, you know, it's when you look at all these things collectively, there's so many benefits to it, but it takes time, which is probably the biggest barrier for a lot of farms is they're already, most farms, even though people think, you know, they're making a lot of money, most farms, even the big farms are massively in debt. We're more in debt as a farming community than ever before. Mm. And, so there it's very um kind of nerve-wracking for a farmer it's also the highest suicide rate um, occupation which most people wouldn't expect but there's really high pressure to not be the generation that loses the family farm so they don't typically want to try a lot of new things especially if it's going to take three to five years to really see all the benefits of it so yeah. there are a lot of barriers until we start to subsidize and do things a little bit different to find the the true value of that kind of farming. Yeah, I think and you just hit on, I think one of the key terms here and that's government subsidies for large scale monocropping of, of crops like corn for animal feed. Um, and we just don't have the subsidies to um, reinforce these kinds of long-term investments and better landscapes for where we grow our food. And I think that's to our peril of our of our health and of both humans but also the planetary ecosystem um, yeah. as you mentioned um, one of the things I try and do on the show is think about ways to empower listeners in making choices even within their own worlds if even if they're not farmers and I know that a lot of people have recently taken up um, or, or attempted to take up home gardening I say attempted because I mean, even though I have a pretty big background in botany, I still, I always joke, I have a brown thumb. I'm not the best gardener. <laughs> so I'm very good at finding plants in the wild and killing them and like bringing them back to the lab, but not so much in growing them. So, um, you know, taking these larger principles of reinforcing soil health, I mean, are there, are there, do you have any tips for people with their home garden, like how how can they effectively um, restore the health or establish the health over the long run of their garden plots? 
Yeah. So I think one of the most important things is, and, and it's fairly easy because there's some of the lowest maintenance plants on the planet is perennials. So if you can find out what your local perennials are that grow in your region, and there's beautiful ones in every region that can add a lot of color to your garden. Some of them are edible, so you can eat them. Like we grow on our farm, Jerusalem artichokes, which are incredibly nutritious. They, they have a, a special fiber that feeds your gut microbiome. Um, and they're beautiful perennials that they come back every single year and they're like beautiful um, sunflowers. And so they're a great pollinator habitat. They're a great hedgerow and they're a very prolific crop that you can grow. Um, so there are a lot of perennials that have multiple benefits, but the best part of perennials is you are building up this ecosystem under your soil because they stay in the ground for a long time. And once they're established, which usually takes about a year, so if you buy a potted plant already at a nursery, it's great, they've already done all that work for you and it'll just thrive year after year after year. And that's really important. A lot of people don't plant perennials or they'll plant invasive species. So I really encourage people to try to find the native plants that would naturally grow in your habitat. And there's a lot of reasons. It's building up your soil. It's also building a habitat for your native pollinators. And our insect population in the world has declined by 80% in the last 25, 30 years. And that's pretty catastrophic if you actually put it into perspective at what insects um, play a role in our in our overall food cycle or, um, or yeah. food chain. And so the more we can do to build up the pollinators, it'll even help you if you have the rest of your garden. So that's like number one, what I try to encourage people to do. And then, I mean, I even like people, even if they don't have a big plot of land, even to just do a pot or, you know, a half barrel, like a half wine barrel, just to grow something and touch the soil and reconnect to your plants because we've lost so much connection. You know, in the 1890s, 90%, over 90% of the population were farmers and they were connected to their food and they understood it. Less than 1% of our population is now growing our food. And so we're so disconnected with it. Um, our bodies are not connecting the way we used to. And, and similar to plants, plants actually, the microbiome that they don't pass down in their seed, they select a lot of that. They bring it to them of what they need to support the plant and, and coping with stress. And humans used to be able to do that as well. So if they were under heavy stress situations, you actually see a, near, a narrowed spectrum of color. And so you go after, normally you would go after the really vibrant purples and reds and things like that, that we now consider most of those superfoods. And your body used to know how to connect with that and say, that's what I need to feed my body and support whatever stress it's under. But we have so many additives and artificial flavors and colors. We really have tricked our bodies to where we're so disconnected with that. And I truly believe when you reconnect with a tomato plant or a bean plant or whatever you select to have in your garden, even lettuce, um, and you you know, you're growing it, you're picking it, you're smelling it, you're getting all of the senses around it. I think you're finally starting to reconnect with your food. And I think it's a really important part of the overall cycle of the way we eat. Um, and I mean, usually you're going to be growing fruits and vegetables and like very few of us get enough of that. You know, one in 10 Americans gets enough fruits and vegetables. 
per the recommendations. And if you look at longevity regions, that's even low for them. They're eating more like 10 servings a day. So the more people can get excited about growing food and, and consuming it, the better. Um, and I tell people start very simple, just start with, you know, not everyone likes tomatoes, but it's a, it's typically a fairly easy crop to grow. Um, so I say, and especially like cherry tomatoes, they're even easier and they're pretty prolific. So to pick the easy plants that don't have really high maintenance, kale, a lot of people don't think about kale, but it's very easy to grow. Um, and it grows pretty fast and you can, it's a cut and come again plant. So you can keep cutting it and harvesting it and, and more pops up. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that, that you could just cut. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're, when, when you're dealing with a, a home garden, how would you recommend that people, um, you know, should they not also till the soil after making a harvest? Should they just kind of cut it at the base, as, as you mentioned? with the large Absolutely, plant? absolutely. And it'll also help build up the healthy um, other organisms. I, I focus a lot on the microbiome, but you also got your earthworms and nematodes and all those other things that start to work in your favor. So you have a lot less plant disease, you know, moving forward. So yeah, I would recommend people leave the root mass in and, and then keep the ground covered. I think that's what a lot of home gardeners um, kind of miss the point on is they, they perfectly till the soil, they plant these perfect rows of seeds or plant a few rows, and then it's all dirt exposed. And, you know, soil is very sensitive to UV light, to air, to water. So if you're not protecting it, it's going to get damaged and it's going to be depleted much faster. So even like um, people that have heard of like square foot gardening, we really encourage people to plant denser and to plant, um, you know, lots of little things that grow really fast, like like radishes and carrots and things that fill in your space very quickly. Mm. So you have a very dense garden and that allows you to really protect that soil and, and keep those principles intact and then you don't have to weed most people that's what they hate about gardening is I'm on my knees and I'm weeding and if you actually plant a ton of radishes in between your lettuce and things that take a little bit longer yeah um, then you don't have to weed which is great <laughs> and then you have more crops you know you actually yeah. are are harvesting then more food on that plot so those are the things that I would you know, recommend people look at is, you know, doing the spacing denser, um, adding compost. I'm a huge advocate of backyard composting, or even if you can get a bin and do the composting in a bin, it's the best thing that you can add to your garden. And you literally can start contributing to climate change reversal and building up an ecosystem. And if you've got some perennials in there, you're helping support also your native pollinators and, and native insects. Um, because that's what the insect decline, the challenge is the invasive species are taking over and our native beneficial insects are starting to decline even at a more rapid rate. So the more we can support the good guys, it really helps balance our garden and we don't have to spray as many chemicals. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I think one other thing that, that came to mind as you were talking was, you know, the memory of just a few weeks ago, my, my youngest son, who's seven years old and in first grade, um, they had a class project to uh, start a lima bean and um, just in a wet paper towel and then he transplanted that and the sense of wonder he had yeah. every day he would run inside mama mama it's so much bigger it's you know it's it's like this big <laughs> showing his hands it's 
it was just amazing. And I think even as adults, we can recapture that wonder by absolutely. I I don't know anyone that doesn't get excited when their first tomato pops up in their in their plant. And and I again, I think it's that connection with our food that we have lost track of that there really is um, joy and um, I mean they're even saying there's there's direct um, you know our gut microbiome does control most of our or a lot of our neurotransmitters that affect our mood so like serotonin 90% is produced in your gut and if you're connecting with plants and you're getting those phytonutrients it's feeding your gut microbiome so there there are directly even linking some of that pleasure with the food and and then obviously the the stress reduction of being outside and, and enjoying yourself so yeah. i think it's all around a healthy thing and it's one of the things i do with my kids not to trick them into eating more vegetables but i think a lot of parents are challenged with that and i would say anything my kids have grown they're much more apt to eat because it's fun for them like the cherry tomatoes i tell everyone grow cherry tomatoes because your kids will just pop them right off of the vine and eat them and they're sweet and they're delicious and they were part of it. And microgreens, we grow a ton of pea shoot microgreens and things like that that are really easy to grow. And I let my kids literally cut them with scissors and they just totally devour them. And I doubt I would ever get them to do that if I you know, had popped it out of a clamshell or a bag or something. So I think even for kids, it's a wonderful thing for them to be part of that life cycle understand the benefits that it's bringing to nature, but then to also connect with that food and start appreciating and enjoying it because they were connected to it, they were part of it. So um, definitely if you have kids, I highly encourage to get them involved in the gardening and let them be part of the process from the seed to the harvest so they can really enjoy that and experience it. No, that's, that's so great. And I think this is something that's so typical too in a lot of um, regional um, diets. I mean, my husband's from Italy and so he, he spent his entire childhood helping his father in their garden and he's always had a love of gardening because of that. And I don't know, maybe we can shift the conversation to talk a little bit about regional diets and you know, what we can learn about those and helping combat chronic illness. Because again, I think a lot of these diets are tightly tied to the act of growing foods that are in season and, you know, not shipped from across the globe, um, but are grown locally and eaten locally. Absolutely. So there's a lot of, um, one of the things that we follow with our meal kits is the longevity diet. And this was Dr. Walter Longo, who's really a, a leading expert in the area of longevity. He spent three decades researching the areas of the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. And Italy is one of them. There's actually two regions in Italy, Sardinia and Calabria. He grew up in Calabria, so he knows that region really well. And you know, he wanted to understand why there was five centenarians, so people that live past 100, in his small town growing up and it was fascinating to him so he spent his life work really understanding you know the, a lot of the science before that was on programmed cell death and aging and what he wanted to focus on, on is programmed longevity how do you actually reverse that and his research is really fascinating because it it really found two things um, that 
the foods that we eat are really critical and even from how they're grown. And then the fasting side. So when should we not be eating and um, letting our body actually decompress and regenerate the cells? So he focused on these two different things. And what we try to focus on is the feeding side, which is, um, you know, he found that certain things activate or accelerate aging. So one of those is sugar. Um, and we have about 50 grams more sugar per day in the U.S. consumption than that is even recommended. And we know now that it accelerates the aging genes um, and it inactivates a lot of factors and enzymes that protect against oxidation and, and cellular damage. And then the other one is protein. We consume in the U.S., even though Consumer Reports, it's usually the number one cited thing that people are worried about in the U.S. is I'm not getting enough protein. We actually are also consuming about 50 grams more protein per day than is recommended. And what's interesting is the longevity regions are even lower than the recommended U.S. levels on both of those areas. So they're essentially not triggering these genes that are promoting rapid aging. Um, and that's what we really, probably one of the biggest takeaways of the longevity diet in these regions is they're mainly plant-based. They eat a little bit of fish, but they're mainly plant-based and they have very little sugar in their diet and they have very little um, added protein. And that allows them to really have this almost programmed longevity. And unfortunately, the American diet is the reverse. We actually are programming ourselves for accelerating aging of ourselves. And then every single one of these longevity regions also practices some sort of fasting. A lot of them do intermittent fasting daily, which is just a lot of them do just a circadian rhythm, which is just a 12-12 fast, which just means you consume food for about 12 hours and you let your body rest and recover and regenerate its cells the other 12 hours. And so it's kind of intuitive and almost natural, but in our modern society, we have access to food 24 seven and it's all in our refrigerator and preserved. Um, whereas, you know, with our ancestors, they were usually eating when they woke up in the morning and when the sun went down, they're kind of done. And that's what we, like, that's what I've adopted personally is I stop eating three to four hours before I go to bed and then I eat again when I wake up. So I'm just, and it lets your body get into this true rhythm where your serotonin is going up throughout the day, your melatonin is going down, and then at night your melatonin is going up. So it really allows you to get into this pattern. And part of that pattern is um, the cellular regeneration. And then he did extensive studies also on prolonged fasting. You know, he created this fasting mimicking diet called Prolon that shows major cellular regeneration and um, programmed longevity if you do a longer fast, more than three days. And so I think that was really um, some of the biggest takeaways from the eating behaviors. And if you look even historically at major religions and um, cultures and civilizations that we've had in the world, most of them have had fasting as some sort of regimen. We just only recently have understood that there's an, a massive health benefit behind it from a regeneration standpoint. Um, so yeah, those are, I think, some of the key things. And then what's interesting, we talked about phytonutrients at the beginning of the call, is phytonutrients are one of the other 
elements, fasting triggers um, the cellular regeneration and phytonutrients and feeding your gut microbiome we see does that as well. So if you're eating the right foods when, you're, when you are consuming food and then you're having periods of fasting, even if it's just overnight, you're letting your body recover and, and really fully have that regeneration. And unfortunately, again, in the US, we don't practice either one of those. We eat a very high sugar diet. We eat a lot more protein than we need. And then we don't allow our body to fully recover overnight and, and um, detox and have this cellular regeneration. So yeah, I think those are probably the most important things that we see. And then the other is we consume about 24% more calories than we did um, in the past 50 years. And more than half of that is contributed to just vegetable oils and, and oils alone. So we've added a lot more of these processed oils into our diet and we've, we're doing less olive oil and healthy fats. And so those are also things that are triggering some of these unhealthy, you know, weight gain is we're just consuming a lot more calories per day yeah. and we're also consuming the wrong calories per day. So those are just things that we see as trends that would be um, life-changing for a lot of people if they started adopting more of that style of diet. Yeah. I, on a previous episode, I, um, I spoke with Dr. Lucas Chisla, who's at university of, um, in Alabama and he does work on this very similar idea of health span versus lifespan. So you have longevity and the, the idea there is it's, and I think this really falls in line well with the concept of health span. It's about longer lifespan, living longer, but also living longer, better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, yeah, that's what this is all about is delaying the onset or eliminating chronic disease. So if you look at the longevity regions, it's not just that people are living past 100, they're living vibrant lives past 100, they're still dancing, they have great cognitive ability. Um, they're more like a 70 year old in the US. And so it's not just about living longer. Like I wouldn't want to live past 100 if, if for 20 of those years, I'm mainly bedridden. I would really want to make sure that I'm vibrant. And, and so what it's really focusing on is expanding those years that you're, you know, active and you feel good and you're um, just all around better cognitive ability, but your athletic ability. And so it's extending those years of your life. And that is what I think is most important is then you're contributing to society. You're enjoying that time. And, and who wouldn't want to enjoy another 10 years of feeling like they're, you know, in their, in their middle part of their life. Um, so I think that's more what, what we seek is also the health span. Um, you know, we call it longevity because that it does allow you to live longer, but it's really about that prime part of your life that you're extending. And if you look on average, like in Italy, it's, it's almost 10 years different. And that's a lot. If, yeah. if you could extend that prime part of your life by 10 years, I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, no kidding. And I think you also hit on something that's really important. There's the importance of diet and um, lifestyle um, you know, you can't be a heavy smoker or a heavy drinker or be, you know, exposed to heavy amounts of UV radiation and still balance out your health just by eating a lot of dark vegetables. I mean, you have to engage in, in health, healthy behaviors all, all the way around. 
Yeah. And so it's, it's all about, you know, moderate exercise, you know, eating healthy foods that are grown in a, in a way that's, as you mentioned, that's really in a biodiverse context where the soil is healthy, where you have, um, more of a natural habitat for these plants than, than kind of the highly artificial monocropping, um, industrial ag approach. I mean, there's pros and cons to this. I mean, I, you could, you could argue that industrial ag does really help feed the world at the same time. It comes at great, um, great cost to the environment and also to local stakeholders and, and their health and our own health because a tomato isn't a tomato, right? You, if you have a tomato from another part of the world, you're not going to get the same chemistry. You're not going to get the same health value as one that's grown from your garden or from a yeah. local, a local farmer. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's the exercise, the diet and the social connections, I think. And this is something that I think a lot of people, unfortunately, through this experiment of isolation um, due to COVID are really acutely experiencing is the importance of socialization to our health and to our well-being. You know, we are social creatures. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I guess as we kind of wrap things up, I wanted to ask, you know, you've taken quite a journey from, you know, working in um, kind of the biotech and pharma field to a different kind of farm field, a little bit of a play on words there. But, um, you know, what are, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned or kind of the big aha moments that have just really surprised you along the way? Well, I think for me, I started in specialty medicine. I lost my uncle to AIDS in the 80s, and there just really wasn't a standard of care, and, and that bothered me. So I wanted to be part of finding solutions for that. And I think the healthcare industry has made leaps and bounds in certain diseases and acute illnesses. Um, but I think, you know, in the 80% of chronic illness that could be eliminated by lifestyle changes, I feel like we've made almost no headway as a country, as a world. And that's where I felt like my knowledge that I had learned over 20 years of my career, um, I could really bring that to farming and, and, the food chain, which I think both are very broken, our, our farming stemming back, you know, a hundred years, we've really struggled and kind of set ourselves up for this, this place that we're in today. And, and there are changes we could make to feed the world. So I'm one of those people that absolutely believes we can do it all with organic farming and regenerative farming. We would have to make some lifestyle changes like less meat. 80% of our farmland focuses on meat production. So if we just shifted some of that to vegetable production, we could grow a lot more vegetables. Um, but I think it's it's really, um, I think it's just really important that we start to focus on food as medicine. And that was where I shifted my passion is, um, I didn't wanna focus as much on sick care. I worked in the area of oncology, these different areas, and there's so little you can do, especially I was in late stage cancer. and. I believe that those therapies should continue to be researched and developed. Um, you know, I always look at the test of what I, what would I do if my child got sick or got cancer and I wouldn't mess around with it, but I would absolutely do everything I could to prevent it, to build their systems, to support them before and after if they went through chemotherapy. Um, so I believe there's a place for both, but I feel like we are completely emphasizing sick care and we're not emphasizing 
the more holistic part of taking care of your body and preventing and even a lot of diseases like type 2 diabetes um, that we know food can truly be medicine and start having major changes. Um, so that's what was for me one of the eye openers that made me shift in this direction and also just every day the more I learn about it you know it seems like we've set up our processes so counterintuitive to what's good for the human body um, so I think there's a lot of change needed I think um, consumers need more options um, and I think it is really going to be necessary that we change it all the way up the healthcare chain and all the way up the food chain to really start help having a a healthy overall body and system and environment um, and it stems partly from the subsidies it stems with how we look at food in the u.s we spend the least amount of food of any country in the world per capita and we spend the most on healthcare. yet we're the only the 34th healthiest country so something's off there and we need to really start making some changes um, our healthcare system the way it is today is not sustainable we will bankrupt this country if it continues down this path so i just really believe that there's changes needed um, and i think they're all achievable and i think a lot of people that are probably already listening to your podcast are already making some of those changes in their life and it doesn't have to be this um, you know negative force change it can be really mutually beneficial you can enjoy healthy food you just have to start training yourself to eating slowly more fruits and vegetables and learning how to cook them in a healthy way that tastes delicious no that's 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 so true it's just changes in your day-to-day -day. yeah so yeah that's that's amazing well Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the show. I learned a lot about regenerative farming um, today. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge in this area. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 quarantine period. You can subscribe to the podcast anywhere that you stream podcasts. You can also find more information on Jennifer's work on regenerative farming and nutrition for longevity at nutritionforlongevity.com. We've got a fabulous lineup of topics and shows for you this season. Help us out by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.